The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen, live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Today's stocks are record highs. Busy week of Fed speak continues as the street debates the path for the first rate cut. We're going to hear from Fed Governor Kugler and Boston Fed President Collins this hour. Then the stock story of the morning, Snap. Shares plummeting on a revenue miss and light guidance. Snap CEO Evan Spiegel joins us live to break down what went wrong this quarter. Get a check on the state of the travel industry with the CEO of Hilton as the company issues some weaker guidance. A nice rally, though, into earning stocks at an all-time high today. Right now, though, in the market, as Carl said, we are approaching the 5,000 mark on the S&P 500 at a record high. It's being driven by some cyclical groups today, like materials and industrials. But tech is also working, and that's a big part of the story. Nasdaq's higher as well, turns higher for the week to Carl, this quiet climb. Yields helping a little bit today. We haven't seen the kind of backup that we've seen in other recent sessions after the jobs report last Friday. Uh, but, just, but good earnings, too. Chipotle's at the top of the list. Emphase is at the top of the list as well. And those are earnings stories. Getting some breaking news from Fed Governor Adriana Kugler. Her, face, her first policy speech since being confirmed last year. She says it may be appropriate to cut rates at some point if inflation continues to progress. If it stalls, it may be appropriate to hold at current levels. She called the January jobs number surprisingly strong, but did add that broader trend shows moderating gains. Expects consumer spending to grow more slowly than last year. Says households' excess savings from the pandemic, quote, likely exhausted. For more on this in the market, let's bring in Wells Fargo Investment Institute senior global market strategist Scott Wren. Scott, what a pleasure to see you again. Bunch of Fed speak today. In fact, that's a big part of the diet of the week. Is it leading us uh, to more of the same of what Powell told 60 Minutes on Sunday? I think it is, Carl. You know, they're, they're rallying the troops here. So every Fed speaker uh, since Jay Powell uh, spoke, and, you know, let's face it, you don't go on 60 Minutes because you don't want, you know, everybody to know about this. But, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, you know, the Fed speak, it's just reinforcing the message. I mean, we've been in the in the three cuts camp this year, s- starting in the second half of the year. I mean, it's it's really amazing to me if you look at the Fed funds futures. You know, it still has like a 20 or 25 percent probability of a of a cut in March. I'm like, you know, where, where what are these people thinking here? And, you know, May's down to, I think, 58% or something like that, which, which uh, you know, in our opinion is way too high there. So, you know, we're going to see still a steady stream. Every Fed speaker, they're going to just reinforce the fact that, hey, um, you know, March is off the table and we're not in a big hurry to yeah. cut rates. If, um, and you, you, you argue that a 5 to 10% decline from here wouldn't be a total surprise. Why would the market look negatively at an economy that continues to chug along so well that it doesn't need rate cuts? Well, and, and you know, Carl, really, uh, you know as well as anybody that, you know, a 5 or 10% correction, I mean, that's, that's not really a big, bold call. I mean, they happen pretty often. Um, but, but, you know, for us, as we look through the next couple of quarters, um, you know, you could easily see second, third quarter growth, you know, 1%, maybe a little bit less. So in our opinion, um, um, earnings estimates, uh, they're still too high. 
Um, the economy is going to slow. Consumer spending is going to slow. I think maybe the holiday season and the December retail sales data that we saw was kind of the last hurrah. So, so I think the market's overly optimistic on the number of Fed cuts still. Um, and I think that um, the market's not priced for any kind of an earnings stumble as you move further through the year. No, and but as you speak, Scott, we're seeing new record highs and the market is sort of climbing this wall of, okay, maybe we won't get as many FUD cuts as we initially thought. Maybe they won't come as early as they initially thought. But the, but the next move will be a cut and they're going to take a look at trimming the balance sheet. And the economic growth is surprising to the upside. I mean, that's the that's the bullish argument right now. Yeah, it has. You know, Sarah, you're right. I mean, the momentum clearly has been to the upside here, and we've been, you know, we've been very cautious on chasing the market. We don't want to do that. Uh, stocks look expensive, and as I said, I, I think that you know, over the next uh, few months, couple of quarters, uh, we're going to hear some news about a meaningfully slower consumer, uh, meaningfully slower. Uh, ec uh, economic situation and earnings estimates that come down. Now, you know, stocks look expensive. We're using a 230 number for the S&P this year. I think the consensus is somewhere 240. 245 somewhere in there and you know you've heard some numbers and guests on your show that have you know they're at 250 or maybe a little bit higher than that so you know if the very top end of that range is correct you know stocks look a lot less expensive but we think that the higher probability is that these earnings estimates are too high and they're going to come down and um, you know the market so far has come to grips with not a cut in March and maybe not one in May and it still keeps setting record highs. So right now, anyway, uh, the number of cuts doesn't seem to be, you know, the market's not married to that. It's just, as you said, the fact that the Fed is going to start cutting. It sounds, Scott, like if you were forced to hold equities, you would remain in the in the bag seven as opposed to any kind of broadening out strategy, right? Yeah, it, you know, Carl, it looks like it looks like whatever top we eventually get to, and you know, what usually happens is a narrow number of stocks, few stocks carry it to the high. Um, but for us, what we've been doing and recommending is that, you know, the high-flying sectors, only three beat the S&P 500 last year and really over the, the last uh, 12 months. Um, tech, which, you know, we were overweight much of last year. Uh, tech, consumer discretionary, communication services. You know, we're recommending that our clients trim positions there back to uh, our weightings. I mean, we're underweight, uh, consumer discretionary and neutral on the other two, and take those funds and move it into uh, industrials, materials, healthcare, energy. You know, we thought energy fell too far financials rallied too much. So we kind of made a swap. We, we went underweight on financials. Uh, we moved that money into energy. So those are some of the things you can do. You know, we're just not sitting here doing nothing, watching the market go higher. We think there's <laughs> actions, actions that you can take. Um, but we're not really keen on jumping on board on these couple of sectors that have really been the dramatic outperformers. I mean We'd rather trim there. Energy's been an underperformer today for the it year. Has. It's yeah. down for the year. It, it, it's not even being lifted by things that you would expect happening geopolitically in the Middle East. Yeah, we think, you know, Sarah, for us, I mean, we don't think oil is going, oil is going to go much lower than the recent lows. We think it has some good potential to the upside over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So that's why, you know, we wanted to buy sectors that are trailing that we think will do better over the next uh, 12 or 18 months. And we wanted to sell the ones that got ahead of themselves, like financials, early sector outperformer, 
Uh, just like small caps, early sector outperformer, we've been underweight those for a while, overweight large caps. And I think, you know, it's not early cycle. Um, it will be at some point, but we think it's way too early to get interested in things like financials, high yield, small caps, all the things that do well early in a cycle. I mean, we haven't even really seen uh, the, the slowest of the quarters uh, anywhere close to it that we think we're going to see over the next couple. Scott, uh, great conversation. Thanks for starting the hour for us. Uh, Scott, Thanks, Ray, as always. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Let's turn to the stock story of the morning. Snap shares cratering after a revenue miss and later guidance. EPS did beat and global daily active users came in above estimates. But right now, the stock is down 34 percent. For more on the quarter, let's turn to CNBC senior media and tech correspondent Julia Borston, who joins us alongside CEO of Snap, Evan Spiegel. Julia, over to you. Thanks, Sarah. And Evan Spiegel, CEO of Snap, thank you so much for joining us right now. You know, with your stock down by over a third this morning, I have to ask you, what's your message to investors who seem to have lost confidence in this stock? Hey, Julia, thanks so much for having me. It does seem like expectations got ahead of our guidance. You know, we delivered a Q4 in line uh, in terms of revenue, beat heavily on uh, adjusted EBITDA, and we guided to a 10-point acceleration uh, for revenue in Q1. So we are seeing some real progress on the advertising platform, and I think what's most encouraging for us as we look towards the long term of the business is that we're seeing better performance for advertisers. So we saw a 90% increase in purchase-related conversions in Q4, and we also are seeing some traction with small and medium-sized businesses. Growth in the number of small and medium-sized uh, advertisers in Q4. So, you know, we're, we're seeing some real and, of course, uh, with small and medium-sized businesses, which gives us, gives us confidence that over time uh, we should see revenue follow. But you are seeing the stock now down to 34 percent. Revenue came in lighter than anticipated. But it really seems like the stock's decline is mostly because your outlook um, for the bottom line for a first quarter loss is so much worse than what analysts had anticipated. And this is even after reporting an earnings beat for the fourth quarter. So why is your outlook so much more negative than what the street was expecting? Well, we did factor in a one-time investment in a brand campaign uh, that really shows how Snapchat is different than social media. Right now, we're seeing a lot of fatigue around social media. People are realizing that it's harmful. Uh, it feels like a popularity. And for your friends and family to help bring people closer together. We have a moderated content platform, which, of course, is better for, for our community, but also for advertisers in terms of brand safety. And so I think there's really an opportunity right now to, to show people how we're different. And so... So, improving the advertising so, platform. Uh, Evan, we're having some issues with your feed. Evan, we're going to fix your feed and then get right back to you. Um, so just uh, as we get that feed fixed up here, Sarah I, yeah. and, and Carl, it really seems like there's a disconnect between the user growth and the progress that Snap is seeing and sort of adapting over to being a direct response platform and the fact that their earnings, especially the guidance for earnings for the first quarter, is just really falling short of expectations. Expectations and also the high bar set by Meta and yeah. Pinterest, even whose stocks have been amazing to watch lately. And you know, it, it was all it was all thought of that the rising tide would lift all boats, right? With the advertising market, with the social media players, and I think we're seeing today with Snap that that's not necessarily true. 
Yeah, not necessarily true. And I think it's really important to look at just sort of the overall revenue growth of Snap's growing its revenue by 5%. And Meta is growing its revenue by 24, 25%. You know, Snap is a much smaller company. It's harder to grow at the pace of Meta off of a base that's so much larger. But Meta is still accelerating its revenue, whereas Snap has seen revenue either in a single digit growth rate or flat to negative over the last several quarters. So very different stories in terms of revenue growth. I mean, one thing I want to put this in context with is this idea that several years ago, both Meta and Snap were struggling with the transition that the Apple App Store um, made that made it harder for them to target ads, um, especially brand advertising. And that's one reason we've really seen companies such as, as Snap double down on this direct response ad business. But the challenge here is that if they've managed that transition and they're over that hurdle, um, why are we not seeing uh, revenue accelerate faster? Uh, you know, it's also about the unit economics, uh, Julia. Uh, Loop points out, we just had them on. Uh, last year, revenue per DAU uh, down 11 and cost per revenue per DAU up eight. Uh, you, that's very hard to sustain. Yeah, hard to sustain. And then you have this other question here. If you have daily active users, this is an ad-driven business. But at the same time, Snap is trying to build up a brand new subscription business. They just announced that they have 7 million subscribers to Snapchat Plus. That's the AI-driven subscription service. 7 million is 2 million added in the quarter. And they just announced their first revenue numbers for this. Uh, for the first time, saying they have an annualized revenue run rate of about $250 million. Now, that annualized revenue run rate could mean any number of different things. So I would love to hear from Evan Spiegel how that actually is going to translate to revenue over this next year. Are, are they anticipating that the addressable market for Snapchat Plus is 20 million users, 20 million subscribers, 30 million? How big do they see that market actually being? And will that be a growth driver? Um, we are going to try to bring Evan Spiegel back in here. Um, Evan, are you with us? I am, Julia. Thank you. Okay, we hope that your feed has been fixed here. Um, since you were going back, uh, sort of back and forth in and out um, before we lost you there, I just want to reiterate this question that seems to be the core of investors' concern. The stock is down 34.5% right now. Um, we've seen Meta accelerating its revenue growth, where Snap missed on the revenue numbers and guided to this meaningful loss in the first quarter, worse than analysts anticipated. What is driving the shortfall and also the differential that we're seeing between Meta and Snap? Well, the adjusted EBITDA guide for Q1 bakes in a brand campaign that we launched to show people how Snapchat is different than social media. I think people are feeling a lot of fatigue around social media right now. It feels like a popularity contest. There's a lot of harmful content, and, and folks are worried about the negative impact. Snapchat was designed differently to bring friends and family closer together, allow people to express themselves uh, through our camera. Uh, and, and of course, our content platform is moderated, which is better for our community, but also better for advertisers in terms of providing a brand safe uh, environment. So we thought it was a really important time right now to share that message and, and to do so when we're seeing improved performance on our advertising platform, because we think that that'll help uh, advertisers re-engage with Snap and, and test out our, the improvements that we've made so far. Now, Evan, you're saying that there's fatigue with social media, but we just saw numbers from Meta that were really a beat across the board. Do you think that you're just at a fundamental disadvantage because Snap's size is so much smaller than Meta's? And, and how will you address that going forward? I think the key for us is really to build a performance advertising business. Historically, we had more of a brand-focused business. And 
We've invested a lot over the last 18 months to help advertisers find success with down funnel conversions. We've seen a tremendous growth in purchase related conversions growing 90% year over year uh, in Q4. And I think that's a testament to the improvements we've been making on the platform. These improvements are also translating to growth in small and medium sized advertisers, which are really important, again, to the long term of our business because they provide much more uh, resilient revenue growth. So uh, I do think uh, we, we continue to have work to do on our, our lower funnel performance advertising business, but it's the right place to focus. We're seeing real progress. And, you know, we're expecting that to translate into improved revenue trends, which is why at the top end of our guide uh, for Q1, we're expecting, a, you know, a 10-point acceleration in terms of that revenue growth. So, of course, yeah. you know, before we see improved revenue trends, we've got to see improved performance for advertisers. And that's why we're excited about the results we saw in Q4. Yeah, I mean, you say you're you're guiding to the best case scenario for first quarter, 10% growth. But this past quarter at 5% revenue growth, you were lagging behind the advertising growth, not just of Meta, which was at 24%, but also of Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. So we're seeing such a, a slower revenue growth rate there, despite this shift over to direct response advertising. When do you think that impact of direct response in that transition will really kick in? I think we're already seeing the impact in terms of improved advertiser performance, which is a key input to growing our direct response advertising business. It's also helping us advocate for more share shifts in 2024 because we're leveraging the results we saw towards the end of 2023 when we're talking with advertisers about winning more budget uh, from them. So I, I do think advertisers are looking for an alternative uh, to these very large uh, big tech advertising companies. They want to diversify their advertising spend, but they need to see the performance. And that's why we've been investing so heavily in our direct mm -hmm. response, especially around lower funnel objectives. Now, you did mention that the war in the Middle East was a headwind to fourth quarter revenue. Um, why did it impact revenue uh, you know, meaningfully, two percentage points? And what is your outlook for the impact uh, of the war in the Middle East going forward? And what's your outlook for the ad market in general? I'd say overall, the advertising market is improving. Uh, that that is, you know, baked into our guidance, as is the impact, uh, you know, of the war in the Middle East. Uh, you know, and, and we guide it at, at the high end of, of our revenue guide for Q1 of 15% year-over-year revenue growth, which is a meaningful acceleration from the 5% that we saw uh, in Q4. So I, I do think overall that the trends are improving, and we are making real progress uh, in, in terms of improving our ad platform. Now, you've also been working on improving your costs. You just announced on Monday that you're cutting 10 percent of your worker base. And this is from a, a, an employee base that's already 20 percent smaller than it was at its peak a couple years ago. What are your further plans for cost cutting? Do you think there are more layoffs ahead? Well, these changes are always really uh, difficult to make. I'm going to miss you know, our, our departing team members. But for us, what we've seen is, is real impact from you know improving the focus of our execution by removing management layers that's helping us move faster and we're also putting a real focus on in-person collaboration and working together at our major hub offices so I, I do hope that this will translate into improved execution i'm excited about the progress we're making but i'd like us to move faster and and i'm hoping that these changes will help uh, help us do that and just a final question on your subscription business. You added 2 million subscribers to Snapchat Plus in the quarter. I mean, you announced a nearly $250 million uh, annualized revenue run rate. Can you give us a sense of how big you think that business can be and what your outlook is for revenue and profitability there? When we launched the service, we set a medium-term goal of 10 million subscribers. We're well on our way there. You know, we've exceeded 7 million subscribers uh, in Q4 with a run rate of $249 million uh, in revenue. I think that's really helped us, you know, work through this transition on the ad platform as well. It's provided a bit of a cushion as we've really ramped up 
our uh, investments in infrastructure, particularly related to machine learning and, and AI. We're running a lot bigger models, using a lot more uh, of these privacy-safe signals. That's making a big difference for our ad platform. And one of the reasons we've been able to, to pay for those investments is because we've seen uh, such success with Snapchat Plus in really a short amount of time. So it's hard to say uh, what that business can become over the long term. But as we look at some of these generative AI tools we've launched recently, Snapchat Plus is a great entry point uh, to those you know, AI editing tools that help people make, uh, you know, make snaps or, or edit their snaps before they send them to their friends. Well, Evan, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning and your patience through the technical issues. Evan Spiegel, CEO of Snap, thanks so much. Thanks, Julia. No, glad we got it fixed. Important answers there. Stock down about 35%. Julia, thank you. Another earnings interview for you after the break. The CEO of Hilton coming up next. That stock hitting an all-time high this morning. Stay with us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hilton stock is higher, hitting a new all-time high today on the back of an earnings beat. Though full-year guidance did fall short of estimates, the company today also announcing a new partnership that will give them access to a new portfolio of luxury hotels around the world. Joining us now to talk about all of this is Hilton President and CEO Chris Nassetta. Welcome back, Chris. Good to see you. Good to see you, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're we're very excited about the year. We had every everything yeah, at the end of the year was stronger than we thought. We ended up yeah. having. Um, record earnings on the bottom line, which was, was terrific, the highest margins we've ever had in the business. The best development year that we've ever had. We signed more new rooms than we ever have in the history of, of the company. And that is carrying over to this year where we're, our net unit growth numbers are increasing. So, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of wind in our sails, a lot of momentum. And then, as you noted, importantly, yeah, we signed an exclusive yeah. partnership agreement uh, that we announced today with small luxury hotels of the world that we're really excited about that will bring the bulk of that system. There's over 500 uh, uh, small luxury hotels all over the world and some of the best destinations with a, with a heavy resort uh, orientation that'll be coming into our system to give our customers even more opportunities to stay with us uh, and expand our network and to earn points and, and redeem points. So. Uh, overall, really excited with last year, but even more excited about the year ahead. Well, okay, so we, I want to talk about all of that. But first, on the year ahead. So the guidance did come in a little bit light, and there are some questions about whether the, the robust demand that you're seeing will continue into the year. Um, occupancy dropping year I, over year well, for the first time in, for uh, the first time in, uh, yeah. in a while. Think, Leisure transit in the U.S. was flat with difficult year-over-year -year yeah. comps. What are you seeing? Let, let me take it bit by bit. First of all, sure. our guidance, as far as we're concerned, did, did not come in light. That, that was an early view of the market because the way we give guidance, we don't uh, account for share buybacks, which is a significant uh, component uh, for us. It's the, what we, we have, we've estimated 
forecast we're going to return $3 billion of capital this year, so it doesn't account for that. It doesn't account for re-levering in order to provide that return of capital. And so I think when you make those adjustments, actually, we really did beat the expectations and consensus views. Um, and we feel really good about, you know, the basic fundamentals of the business. You know, the fundamentals are driven by two things, demand and supply. Um, demand side, um, business transient continues to recover. It recovered further into the fourth quarter from the third. We think that's going to continue to improve. That's going to be aided by continued inbound international travel. Uh, meetings and events business, which is 20% of our business, is off the hook, uh, as you and I have talked about before in terms of demand. And leisure is still, um, while it isn't as strong year over year, it is still way over pre-pandemic levels. And we're continuing to see growth even in, in the leisure business. So when you put all those things together, um, the fundamentals on the demand side are very good. And that's against historically low supply or capacity additions in the industry that are hovering around 1% against a 2.5% 30-year average. And so the laws of economics are alive and well. Demand remains quite strong, as demonstrated by what we saw in the fourth quarter continuing into this year. And supply is, is, is quite, quite low. So um, we feel, as I said, very good about the momentum we're carrying into the year and, and, and how this year is going to play out. Chris, would you at least allow that at the high end, uh, pricing may be approaching a ceiling? Uh, well, I, 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 I don't think so. Again, <laughs> Carl, um, I think it has everything to do with the laws of economics. In our industry, we continue to see pent-up demand in a bunch of categories, and there's just no new supply. I think the meetings and events business is a good example where you know our, our group booking pays for the year is up 16% year over year. And the reality is there's just not enough places for people to meet. I mean, there are people having to look further and further out. And so, you know, what happens? It means there's a lot of demand against a very limited supply. It means we have pricing, pricing, uh, uh, pricing power. Yeah. And the same, you know, the same is true to a degree in the other segments. And so I don't, I think, you know, if demand remains reasonably strong and with a consensus view of a soft landing, we think it will against mm -hmm. very little supply addition, Chris. I think we continue to have pricing power. Chris, really quickly on this on this new deal with the small luxury hotels of the world, yeah. I am curious if that, if that signals that that's where the strength is right now in the portfolio when it comes to what's growing, what's holding up the best. Is it luxury? Not necessarily. I think it, I, I don't, you know, we make, you know, deals like that and enter into partnerships with a very long view not with a view towards what's going to be good in the next few quarters or this year. And our view on that is that, you know, we're going to be able to bring in hundreds of small luxury hotels in the most sought after destinations, resorts, urban, but a very, as I said, very heavy resort destination that's going to continue to build our network effect that'll keep, that'll bring new customers into our system that will please our existing customers because they'll have hundreds of incremental options. They'll be able to earn their points. They'll be able to redeem, to travel and take vacations mm -hmm. with their families. And so for us, it's about customer acquisition always and then building the power of our network um, and, and not much to do with, honestly, what we think is going to happen in the next two, three, four quarters. This is a partnership that, you know, yeah. that obviously is going to go on for many, many years. Well, Chris, market's excited about it, up another almost 2% on the stock. Thank you so much for joining us and adding all that color. Oh, 
Always great. Yeah, always <laughs> great to be with you. Thanks for you having too. me. You too. Christmas at us, CEO of Hilton. Meantime, three media giants teaming up to create a new sports streaming platform. We're going to get to that. Plus, look ahead to Disney tonight when Money Movers continues. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Money Movers. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting today with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and separately with Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas as he tries to advance ceasefire talks. This as negotiators say Hamas's latest response to negotiations has been met with optimism. Mass protests in Spain for a second straight day as farmers block the streets of Barcelona. They are protesting high costs, bureaucratic obstacles, and cheap competition. One of the biggest complaints that EU rules to protect the environment make them less competitive than farmers in other regions such as Latin America. Coca-Cola is spicing things up. The brand announcing a new flavor, Coke Spiced. It's the first permanent flavor to be introduced by the company in three years. Coke says it blends the taste of the classic soft drink with a burst of raspberry and spiced notes. The new drink will be in stores starting February 19th. Carl? Back hmm, over you, to you. I mean, it's I'm spicy. looking at Sarah asking if she's tried it. Tried you have it. not no, tried it. No. But I'm sure I will. You will very soon. I tried their last flavor of AI. <laughs> you know, they're using AI now, so maybe that's what told yes, them that really? this is what consumers want. For Coke, that's amazing. <laughs> flavor profiles, I guess. Or they tested in Japan, where all yes, good beverages exactly. get tested first. Bertha, thanks. Uh, Bertha Coombs. Uh, coming up next, a look at the future of sports streaming as Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery team up for this new platform. We'll get some details and a look ahead to Disney later tonight. Getting some headlines from Boston Fed President now, Susan Collins. President Collins saying that it is likely to appropriate, likely appropriate to, quote, begin easing policy restraint later this year. She adds that we need to see more evidence of sustained inflation progress before considering cutting rates and that the risk of inflation remaining above 2 percent has receded. Collins saying that the Fed should not overreact to individual data points. They really are just coming out one after another parroting the Powell line about needing to have patience and waiting till a little bit later in the year. That's two for the hour. Now, Collins, they're singing from the same hymn book here. Yeah, although, as Nick Timmeros uh, puts out on X, all with an easing bias, which is the other sort of easing unifying bias, but force. not yet. Yes. Easing bias. Yes. Well, watch that. In the meantime, a major shakeup in the streaming world, as you may know by now. Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery announcing a new joint sports venture that would launch this fall. Pricing still up in the air. CNBC reporting anywhere from $30 to $50 a month. But no matter what it is, likely to cost less than a traditional cable bundle. Joining us here at Post 9 with some of the potential winners and losers, what this might mean for media overall, is New York Times assistant editor Ed Lee our good friend. It's great to have you back, Ed. Welcome. Sure. Thank you. Good to be back. Is this yeah. thing designed to kill cable or bring people in who don't have cable? So it could do both, really, right? I think um, right now or for the last few years, traditional media companies have had to face this conundrum, right? How to replace declining video subscribers with streaming subscribers, right? But beyond that, getting the right margin, right? Because cable has always been a great margin business. Streaming, terrible margin business, right? So 
I think it's designed to do both. Ultimately, sports is what has driven pay TV pretty much for decades. Um, and the fact that ESPN is included in this potential bundle or this, this new bundle is really the key driver. The other key driver potentially is price, right? So that I think is going to make the biggest difference to the impact of this deal, right? If it's price sort of like, you know, I'm guesstimating 50 bucks or so, doesn't include CBS, doesn't include NBC, so you'd have to pay for Paramount and Peacock on top of this to replace your cable bundle to get all your TV and sports, then you're just paying for another cable bundle, right, at that sense. It's got to be lower than that, I think, for it to have a huge impact and to draw cable subscribers away, I think, if that's what they really want to do. Why are they doing this? And specifically, why is Disney doing this? And right. do you read anything into the fact that they announced this? A day before earnings, earnings, when they're under the gun from a, in a proxy fight with an activist investor who has questioned Iger's strategy, and one of the key components of Iger's strategy is what happens to ESPN? So ESPN has been in structural decline for years. It's been a question mark how how they can how can they solve it? Bob Iger didn't solve it even on his his last go around before Bob Chapek took over. So this seems to be a real first stab at that that conundrum. Now, the timing of it is interesting and unusual. I don't know how much of that is a reaction to, you know, the activists out there and, and what they've been pushing for, because, you know, as, the, as Disney has been saying, the activists haven't really pushed for a specific strategy or an outline strategy. This is the most specific strategy we've seen from really anybody across the entire sector. So, But the it, stock's down. Stock is down, right? Well, we don't know a lot of things. The, this this announcement actually raises more questions than it answers. <laughs> There's a lot of great potential in this. But again, it, there, there's so many unanswered questions. Who's going to run this, right? The, the, the bear case on this is that this is sports for Hulu, right? Hulu for sports, whichever way you want to put it. We saw how Hulu turned out. I mean, Hulu is still a great brand and a good product. I personally watch it all the time. But in terms of management and leadership and direction, JVs are always tough, right? So you have three media conglomerates sort of like sharing, sharing in this. And it doesn't always work out great. What about the notion that this is a group effort to fend off those with even deeper pockets like Amazon and Apple and Alphabet? And I think that is the most sort of salient read actually right now on this because the more immediate threat is Amazon, Apple, you know, maybe even Netflix somewhere down the line, even though Netflix has never you know, said they want to do live sports. They have the big money, right? So NBA renewals are coming up. Um, they could come in and grab a huge portion of that. Amazon grabbed Thursday Night Football. That's actually been a huge success for them, right? And so it's proved that streaming, like streaming sports can work. You can get eyeballs. You can get a, a mass sort of... It can of work technically, all that. Work Technically, but then also just culturally. People can adapt to it and say, like, you know, where's streaming? I'll go watch it, right? So that has been proved out. So now it's sort of like, okay, if that works, then why don't we just go all in, make a bundle, get maybe 50, 60% of the sports out there on this streaming service, attract a lot of new new and old you know, TV watchers. Because they're all trying to, to build their own streaming businesses as well. And Warner already has sports on Max. Right. Disney has already teased an ESPN streaming. Right. So doesn't this just cannibalize themselves? So that is a great question. That's a question I have as well. I think, you know, it's also uh, they're bowing to sort of the cable structure, right? People pay for people who still pay for cable, myself included. A lot of it is just like I can't get all my NFL otherwise, right? I can't get all my NBA otherwise, right? So them doing a tie up like this, at least at the outset, is an indication that like people just want all the sports. This tie up does a good amount of it, not all of it, right? So then 
The other question is, well, what about CBS? What about NBC? Could they come into the fold at some point? And then the big, the, the overarching, the structural question is like, can they, can this last? Can this like continue to go on? Um, and so again, I, I appreciate the bold gesture. Um, how bold it is, we still don't know yet. How is it going to be priced? Who else is going to be involved? Who's going to run it? Can they, can they, you know, share? You know, yeah. is really what it comes down to. Um, and the tech guys are, are, are coming, right? They, they've been here. They're going to continue to come. And I think it's as much an acknowledgement of that as well. So. We'll talk about news another time, uh, and it's good to see yes, you. Thank of course. you, many times, Edley of the Times. And we should mention a lot more is coming up tonight. Uh, Disney this afternoon. Bob Iger will join Closing Bell Overtime at 4 p.m. Eastern, and you can imagine the questions they have for Bob. A lot of questions up next. What Alibaba results tell us about investing in China as the government tries to prop up the market? Tech Check is going to look into that next. Stay with us. Shares of Alibaba sinking this morning after the Chinese e-commerce giant narrowly missed top-line street expectations, even after announcing a $25 billion boost to its share buyback program. That's the focus of today's Tech Check segment with our Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, how are you reading these results? Well, I'm reading them in that a buyback just isn't enough because Alibaba's problems are its fundamentals and capital returns aren't going to gloss over that. Its core e-commerce business, it is barely growing and spinoff plans have hit a snag. At the heart of Baba's decline and Chinese stocks at large is still this idea that they are uninvestable. Take a look at this chart of Alibaba shares and the Hang Seng, that's Hong Kong Stock Index, since December of 2022. They have moved in tandem. Christmas time in 2020, that was the key inflection moment. The Chinese government launched an antitrust investigation into Alibaba introducing a wild card to the market at large. It essentially told investors that Beijing could and would interfere at any time, even taking aim at its largest and most successful companies. Didi's botched IPO would follow. Another internet giant Tencent would be targeted by gaming curbs. The crackdown that started with Alibaba and its affiliate Ant Financial, Ant Group, would change the field entirely and allow a potentially more powerful class of Chinese giants to emerge. Pinduoduo, Huawei, BYD, these are the success stories of the last few years. And Alibaba represents the decay of the old guard. To try and win back investor confidence, it has moved Jack Ma out of the spotlight, restructured the entire company, and tried to spin off its cloud unit. Nothing has seemed to work. And its market cap, take a look at this, it went from a peak of more than $800 billion to less than $200 billion today. That expanded buyback, guys kind of like Alibaba's damage control, and that might keep investors in the stock, but it does not address those fundamentals that are declining. And similarly, Beijing's recent measures to support the stock market, that may also be short-lived because it's this broader backdrop, guys, that China may just be uninvestable. Yeah, it's been this sort of start-stop when it comes to these rallies on the, on the results after they have good news on propping up stocks. Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa, the CEO of Edgewell Personal Care is next. That's the company behind Edge and Schick Razors, Banana Boat Sunscreen, and many more consumer products. We'll get his read on the consumer and inflation and reaction to earnings when we're back in two. Close out the hour with Edgewell Personal Care, the company behind brands like Banana Boat Sunscreen, Playtex, Schick Razors, higher this morning after delivering a beat on the top and bottom lines in its fiscal Q1. Joining us now for a closer look at the quarter and the consumer, Edgewell CEO, Rod Little. Rod, it's good to have you back. And we didn't get uh, such clean results from all the household products companies this quarter. What are you seeing from the consumer right now? 
Yeah, good morning, Sarah. Well, it's, uh, it's a resilient consumer. I think we've been saying that, and we're seeing that in our results. Um, our categories are healthy domestically here in the United States. Largely, they're healthy outside the United States as well. And so with a resilient consumer, if you put good products, good innovation, good messaging in front of them at the right price, they'll respond. And so we had a good quarter with organic sales up 3% in line with our expectations. Where we really had the beat was on the gross margin line and then bottom line profitability, EBITDA, EPS, and cash flow, all well ahead of street expectations. So it's our first fiscal quarter. We feel good about it. Sets us up well for the year. So let's talk about gross margin, uh, um, which was obviously a bit higher. How much inventory is played into that and, and how much pricing is also playing in? Yeah, our pricing is a big driver for us. Still, we have some, some net list pricing still going in, largely outside the United States, where we're still putting some pricing in in markets like Asia, Mexico, Latin America generally. Um, we've had really good revenue management outcomes, so managing mix, promotional intensity, um, anything that's a discount between gross and net sales. Uh, the teams have done a really nice job on being very, very efficient there. So our three points of organic sales growth was flat volume, three points on price and revenue. And then the other thing I'm really proud of, and I know our team is very, very good at, is being very productive around our cost management, around our cost of goods. We had almost 400 basis points of cost productivity in the quarter um, which won't continue at that rate, but um, that obviously helped drive the beat on margin. Yeah, that was, I thought, one of the most interesting parts, especially your comments about continued efficiency improvement in the supply chain. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what's left to do because there's been talk of supply chain healing for so long. Yeah, Carl, there, there is. One of the things we see is everything's just in better balance and it's more predictable. Lead times are more, more normal. And with that, you end up just getting efficiency. And then as you get into contract rate negotiations, you have better outcomes in those negotiations. So we're seeing that. Another example is less air freight. Things going by boat more traditionally like they have the Red Sea aside, that's not super material for us. Um, but we're, we're having that happen, and then we're focused on design to value and looking at what we put into a product that the consumer really cares about, and if there's something in there they don't care about, well, let's take it out. So using less materials as we make our product is one thing we're focused on. And then the other thing that's helped is been uh, diesel rates and line haul rates um, have come down and been better than expected, and that obviously helps contribute to the lower cost environment as well. I mean, the one weak spot in the organic growth is in the feminine care market. So I wonder what you're telling investors and what kind of visibility you have there toward turning around. It was a lot weaker than analysts were even expecting. Yeah, it, it was, Sarah, and that, that's a good point. It's actually one of the areas of our business I'm most bullish about in terms of where we are uh, on our journey to have a consistent growing business that, that can win in market versus competition. If you look at that business on a two-year stack basis in the quarter, we were up slightly. There was a big quarter um, in the prior year period, um, largely around one-time events and, and resupply now happening. That business has been really choppy, as you know, from the beginning of the pandemic. Those were the shelves that were most empty at the yeah. beginning of the pandemic, and we're just now getting back into balance. And so part of that is what we were lapping and comping mm. against. Part of it is we're getting yeah. ready to set the shelves with a new um, innovation that's going to take a carefree master brand into a space that now covers pads and liners. It's primarily a pad business today. 
Um, so and so the part issue. of that was us just resetting. Correct. All right, Rod, we, we're out of time. We got to leave it there. But thank you for taking the questions. Talk in the quarter, Rod Little of Edgewell. We'll remain on uh, S&P uh, 5K watch, still about 10 points away. Tomorrow's going to be interesting, too, with pins and Under Armour and a firm. And Ralph we'll work Warren. our way through D Disney tonight. Well. Yeah, a lot of moving catalysts on earnings and a revision on CPI yeah, on, Friday. on Friday. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.